The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. I uh, do love reading biographies. I love learning about history, and the men uh, got a small, small taste of that yesterday when I shared some uh, stories about some things I've been learning about the Civil War and some of the the, the, the men and who fought, some of the, the slaves who came out of that. It's an incredible uh, learning experience. There have been uh, many great figures in history, period, not just the Civil War, of course, or other times of our own history, just great men and women throughout the history of the human race known for their contributions, known for what they have done for the world. But one thing is always true. The more you investigate someone, the more you dig into his or her beliefs and practices, the more things eventually you'll be disappointed by. At least that's true concerning every person you could investigate except one and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The more you investigate him, the more closely you look at who he is and what he has done and what he is doing, as one author said, the more brightly he actually shines. So we're going to investigate him this morning. We're going to investigate the person and work of Christ to see just how wonderful he is, And there are many, many passages in Scripture we could turn to that exalt Christ in one sense. All of Scripture does point to Him. But the book of Hebrews is especially significant in this regard. So that's where we will be today. A little bit about the book of Hebrews as we begin this morning. We don't know who who the human writer is, but ultimately the Holy Spirit, through some human author has carefully and methodically made the case in this epistle that Christ is preeminent. He is supreme. And that central theme about the preeminence or superiority of Christ is presented in the form of contrast in this book. For example, in chapters 1 and 2, his position of superiority or preeminence is developed by proving that he is superior to the angels. In chapter 3, his superiority to Moses is seen. And then in a long section, chapters 4 through 10, we find that he is a better priest. We see in those chapters that he offers a better covenant. He himself, Scripture teaches in this section, is a better sanctuary than the Old Testament sanctuary. And he certainly was a better sacrifice than what was offered in the Old Testament system of sacrifices. And in the remaining section then of the book, you find some practical exhortations. The particular passage that we are examining today is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. It's in that long section of Hebrews 4 through 10 that is presenting him as being so superior to so much of what we find under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. And this passage is presenting Christ as being a better priest than the Old Testament priest. 
Now, here's why we are looking at that subject this morning. Because for the weekend, in this conference, starting Friday evening and continuing now and then through tonight, we are examining a four-part series, really, of what I'm calling the present tense ministry of Jesus. As I explained in our first session together Friday night, this has to do with where Jesus is now and what Jesus is doing. Once he left the earth, where is he now and what is he doing? We find in Acts chapter 1 what we call the ascension of Christ, which I pointed out to you in our study of that a little bit Friday night, that it means he's somewhere and he's doing something. And this is a very, very important topic, yet it's something that many Christians don't really think about that much. We think about the incarnation, we think about the crucifixion, we think about the resurrection and maybe the ascension, but what happened after that? What's he doing now? We don't seem to go much further in our thinking about that, what he's doing now in the present tense. It's as if we've pushed a pause button, as it were, on our understanding of that just waiting for the fact that he's coming again someday. But Scripture is clear that Jesus did return to heaven. He ascended to heaven where he is seated now at the right hand of God or seated at the right hand of majesty on high. I pointed out Friday evening that that doesn't refer to a location. It's not something geographical, somewhere over toward the right of where the Father is sitting, as in a room or something. It doesn't mean that. It really doesn't even mean a literal sitting at all, as if he's in a chair or on a throne. It's not describing something that is geographical or something that is a physical position. Instead, right hand is a way of stating a place or position of honor, a position of authority. And seated is a way of conveying the idea of being settled, being settled in a position due to having completed something. So put all that together, as the ascended Lord, Jesus is now in heaven in the exalted position of being the honored ruler of all things. And he's in that position because he's, he finished his earthly mission, that earthly mission of making atonement for the sins of his people. That mission was completed. That's what it means to be seated at the right hand of majesty on high. But in that place of supreme honor, in that place of supreme glory, Jesus is not just doing nothing. I think that's a double negative, and we're not supposed to use those. He's not doing nothing. He is not inactive. He is very active. Jesus is active ministering in us and for us and through us. He is active ruling over all things. He's active even interceding for us. And our point this weekend is that this reality has implications for us as we live our lives in this world as his followers. We look at two of those implications Friday evening. The fact that Jesus is in heaven seated at the right hand of God, number one, I mentioned to you, provokes a pilgrim mindset. So I'm just reviewing with you for a moment because we're part of a conference. It provokes a pilgrim mindset. In other words, the fact that Jesus is there at the right hand of majesty on high is a constant reminder to us that that's our true home. That's where we headed because that's where our Lord is. And that means we're just pilgrims then. Pilgrims passing through this temporary world as we 
heard sung this morning and as we sang ourselves. And that reality is like a magnet. It's like a reality, a magnet that pulls us out of our problems, it pulls us out of our challenges and our failures, as well as all of our perspective our successes, and gives us this perspective of who we really are on our way to heaven. That's where our citizenship is. I mentioned to you that Colossians 3 says, therefore, we're to keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and that includes setting our minds on things above and not on the things of earth. That has incredible implication then further for us of how we live and how we think in this world. It prompts then, provokes in us a pilgrim mindset. Second, I said to you that this whole idea of where Christ is and what he's doing prompts assurance of salvation due to our eternal security. I'll just review some verses with you that I mentioned. Romans 8, verse 24, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He keeps us secure because he ministers to us that way, interceding for us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Here the apostle John writes that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who made atonement for our sin, is there in heaven. His presence there makes the statement that our sins have been paid for. All of our sins, past, present, and future. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7 say that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. There is a sense in which positionally we're there now with him. Pilgrims passing through this world, but yet positionally seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And if that's not encouraging enough about our eternal security, Colossians 3, verses 3 through 4 say this, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are in the very depths of the Godhead because that's where Christ is and we're seated with him there. Now this morning... We are looking at the third implication of the fact that Christ is in heaven at the right hand of God, ministering in us, ministering for us, ministering through us. Christ, in his settled position and ministry at the right hand of God, number three, provides help in times of trial and temptation. The fact that he is ministering now in the present tense, that helps us understand that we have incredible help now in times of trial and temptation. Now, our passage, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, present this incredible fact that this Christ, who is at the right hand of God in the present tense, is our great high priest. Let me read verses 14 through 16 for us. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Now, Jesus, in this book of Hebrews, if we took time to check all this out, Jesus has already been introduced, actually, as a high priest in chapter 2, verse 17. He's introduced as a high priest in chapter 3, verse 1. But here in our passage, verse 14, the author adds a thought. Jesus is not just a high priest. Notice how it says he is a great high priest. He is the great high priest. Great is a, is a Greek term, megas. It sounds like our word mega, great. The writer is using this term to say that Christ is not just any kind of priest. He's not just any kind of high priest. He is the greatest of all priests. It's, it's equivalent in the Hebrew mind of saying something like this. He is the great, great, great high priest. And those words give us incredible reasons to be encouraged. In fact, these verses go on to give us reasons that this is true. Reasons why he is considered the megas high priest, the great high priest, and therefore why he's a better priest, a better minister, a better counselor, a better pastor than any human who could ever try to give us help. Let's look at the reasons of why Jesus is the greatest of all high priests. Reason number one, his qualifications are unique. His qualifications are unique. What qualifications? And why are they so unique? Well, let's look at them. What, what are the qualifications that make Jesus great? Well, here's one qualification in our list. He is ascended. He's ascended. Notice that phrase. He's passed through the heavens. That is a significant phrase. And with it, we have an important contrast then to the Old Testament system of priests. Under the Old Testament, covenant, the high priest would pass through something. He would pass through the various courts that were found in the Old Testament tabernacle. And then after he passed through the courts, he would finally pass through a veil, a curtain as it were, that separated the people from what was called the holy place or the holiest of places, the holy of holies. That inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where the glory of the Lord rested above the mercy seat there. And once inside that holy place, after passing through the courts and passing through the veil, the curtain, that high priest would offer a sacrifice, first for his own sin, and then he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of all the people. And if you've read about that in the Old Testament, I know you understand this, that he wouldn't stay there very long. He wouldn't linger. He would get in and get out. He would quickly offer the sacrifices and then withdraw. And he would only do it one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And only the high priest was allowed to do that on that one day a year. All other priests were excluded from passing through the courts and then the veil into the Holy of Holies that one day of year. The writer of Hebrews is drawing upon their knowledge of that. And he's saying here that Jesus is infinitely more qualified because he didn't just pass through the outer courts of the sanctuary to stand in the presence of God just briefly, only for a few moments, and only for one day of the year, and then to withdraw. No, he passed through the heavens. That's the reference to Acts chapter 1 in the ascension that we looked at Friday evening. Some of his followers were there on the mount. 
looking on, and this cloud surrounded Jesus right in front of their eyes. And then the cloud dissipated. And when it did, he was gone. It wasn't that he just kept rising and rising and going higher, higher, higher. He disappeared in the sense that he passed from one sphere into another sphere, another dimension. So there is a great contrast understood here. The Old Testament priest passed from the side of the people to enter the Holy of Holies, but was there for only a few moments and then rejoined the people. Christ passed from the sight of the watching apostles and entered into the heavenly sanctuary. Our high priest penetrated, as it were, the very presence of God. And he's there now. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, puts it this way. He ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. He completely transcended all limits, all limits of time, all limits of space, and he went into this other realm. And just so you'll know, that verb pass through is a perfect tense verb. It means completed action, something that happened in the past, but it has lasting results still going on in the present tense. This is a very unique credential that Jesus, our high priest, has. He is ascended, and he's will not lose this unique credential. Jump ahead in your mind just for a moment to Hebrews 9. I'll read what verse 24 says there. Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, he goes on to say, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's going on right now. That qualification makes Jesus a great high priest that he's ascended. Here's another qualification that makes him unique. He is both human and divine. He's both human and divine. Verse 14 refers to him as Jesus, the Son of God. That means some things for us, that first of all, our high priest is none other than the historical Jesus. He was fully man, the one born of Mary, 33 years he lived on this earth, in many ways just a common human life on this earth, fully recognized during that time as a man living among other people. He exhibited humanness. We saw it, see it in his emotions. We see it in his feelings, in his actions. He was sensitive to suffering, whether it was bodily suffering or mental suffering, he had times where he was weary, times where he was hungry, times where he was sleepy. He suffered a human death. It wasn't some sort of special, sublime death. He felt extreme pain in a human body. But on the other hand, he's Jesus, the Son of God. That's his divinity. He was also fully God, fully human, fully God, completely divine, being perfect in essence as God. That's why we find this description of Jesus in Titus 2, verse 13. Paul refers to him as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this little phrase, Jesus the Son of God, is intentionally introduced here, 
combining the humanity and the divinity of Jesus as the perfect qualifications to be the high priest who is superior to all other priests, all other counselors. No pastor, no human priest, no minister, no teacher can claim these qualifications. I know your pastor. He's not like this. He's a great guy, but he can't say, I ascended. He can't say, I'm fully human and fully God. None of us can say that, but Christ has those qualifications. Those are his credentials. He's majestic, majestic in power, majestic in glory as the ascended Son of God, both human and divine, now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's his place of honor and authority because everything he was sent to accomplish on earth has been settled. There's a second reason here in this text of why Jesus is such a great high priest. Not only are his qualifications unique, but second, his sympathy is profound. His sympathy for us is profound. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now that word sympathize literally means to suffer along with So it's relating here to Christ's sympathy along with us, his sympathy for his people. And the object of his sympathy, it says, is our weaknesses. It's precisely because of our weaknesses that he embraced and made his own when he took our nature upon himself. It was that that he took upon himself. Philippians 2, verse 7, when he came from heaven to earth, it says he was made in the likeness of men. Isaiah 53, all the way back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, verse 4, he himself took our infirmities. You see, this term, weakness, is a very comprehensive term. It includes any form of frailty and weakness and need that we have, any. That's whom Christ has sympathy for, those who are the needy ones, the weak ones. Sympathy, the sympathy of Christ is not for self-sufficient people. Sympathy is there for those who understand their weakness, their frailty. Isn't it sad that many times what keeps people away from the Lord going to him for the help they need while they're pilgrims in this world is the very thing that should motivate them to come to him. What keeps them away is the recognition of their failure, their sense of failure. But understand what this is saying for us. If you come to Christ because you think you're finally ready to go to him, you've cleaned yourself up a little bit, and now you're somewhat worthy to go and spend some time with him and pray, there's a sense in which this is saying there's no sympathy for you. But if you're someone who senses your need, you have a great need for Christ, this passage is so encouraging, it's it's saying he's sympathetic to you. Now verse 15 goes on to explain why the sympathy of Christ, the sympathy that he feels for us, is so profound. His sympathy is profound. What makes it so profound? Well, first of all, the breadth of his experience. The breadth of his experience. He is one who has been tempted in all things as we are. 
His temptations are as we are, as we are. In other words, they're like ours. They extend to all points in all things, it says. Now, let's understand something. This passage is not saying that Jesus experienced or faced every single possible different particular temptation that some human being has specifically faced. But think about something. At the root of all the different kinds of temptations that there are, any temptation that's ever been encountered by men and women throughout all the range of human existence and experience, there are a number at the bottom of all that, just basic trials and temptations that we all face. They boil down to these things. And Jesus knew what it was to meet all those categories. He met them, and he emerged victoriously from the struggle. In other words, he did face times of danger. We understand that. He had to deal with sorrows. We face those kind of tests and temptations. He coped with physical problems, thirst and weariness and being deserted by his friends and disappointed. He had lots of experiences like that throughout his earthly ministry. He dealt even with times of despair and doubt. He faced the temptation of being preoccupied with his own desires. Satan tempted him that way. The enticement to self-concern, he faced that. He faced the temptation of of popular acclaim and, and applause and the temptation for ambition and power, all of that. Satan threw upon him in the wilderness temptations, but Scripture tells us he faced temptations beyond that, just what we read about in the wilderness. He was tempted to go against God's will. He was tempted to abandon his purpose on earth. I'm just saying, his whole life on earth was one of testing and proving. So the phrase, in all things, puts Jesus in the same category as ourselves when it comes to temptation. He's been tempted in extent and in range in every way. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Hebrews 2, verse 18. So his sympathy is profound, but understand the point there. His sympathy is not just based on the fact that he's God and he has knowledge of all things. It's based upon his experience He endured the same things we endure, every form of testing, every category of testing that we could ever endure. He experienced it. The breadth of his experience makes his sympathy so profound. So does this, the very depth of his experience, the depth of it. It says that he experienced temptation in all things as we are, but at the end of verse 15, yet without sin, without sin, Now, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 would be another passage of Scripture. There are others, but it's another reference, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that tells us that Christ knew no sin. It said that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. In 1 Peter chapter 2, when when Peter is putting Christ forth as an example for how to suffer, especially when we are treated unfairly in some way, it says in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, that Christ committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 
Now, the point is that Christ's actions, his thoughts, his motives, not one aspect of them were ever questionable or selfish in any way. Now, that is another great contrast to the Old Testament priest. They had to atone for their own sins first, not Christ. And like any human priest, He endured the breadth of all the categories of temptations without any weakening of his faith in God, without relaxing his obedience to the Father in any way. But that begs a question. If he has no bias to sin as we have, because he's fully human and divine, is he not by that fact in a privileged position and that distinguishes his temptation from ours? In other words, was he truly tempted If he's fully God, if he's divine in nature, just remember something. Yes, he's both human and divine. And in his humanity, he was definitely tempted just like us. In his humanity. But since he had a divine nature as well, his temptation was not less than ours. Instead, because he was divine and therefore perfect and without sin, his endurance involved more than ordinary human suffering, not less. You see, the strength of temptation is greater for someone who is sinless. Only the sinless can know temptation in its full intensity. Let's think about the temptations we endure. We have a promise from God. According to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God never allows us to be tempted with the full force of what Satan could throw our way. He never allows us to be fully tested to the full force of what our own sinful bias, our flesh, could throw our way. Which means that when we yield to temptation, it's not because we have no choice, because we have to, we choose to sin. And it's at a far lesser level of intensity due to the fact that we're fallen. We only have a human nature. But for the sinless person, the temptation is intensified and intensified and intensified far beyond we could ever face. And in his humanity, he felt that the full force of what temptation could be, not a lesser force. And all the time that he's experiencing that, Because of his divinity, he could never yield to it. The full force of it, the full force of it. Christ endured temptation at the highest level of intensity. We will never be able to fathom the extent of the temptations that Christ endured, and yet he withstood them. So the victory of Christ over the intense temptations he faced in all areas of life makes him sympathetic, which is the point here, toward our weaknesses. That is very encouraging. He has an unequal capacity for sympathizing with us. He even anticipates the temptations that you and I will face. This makes him a great, great high priest. His qualifications are unique. He's the ascended Lord, and he's both human and divine. And his sympathy is profound because of the breadth of his experience and because of the depth of his experience. And third, what's the reason that he's such a great high priest? Third, his help is assured. 
His help is assured. I'll tell you why we can know that. Because of what this text says. It's assured because of this. First of all, he's always available. He's always available. I mean, notice that God's saved people are encouraged by the writer to draw near to Christ at any time. Verse 16, let us therefore, because of all this, draw near with confidence any time. Draw near. He's beckoning us to draw near at any time. Let's get very practical. He needs no secretary to make appointments. You never have to make an appointment ahead of time with Christ. And you never have to juggle your schedule with his schedule to try to find a time where the two of you can meet and talk to get some help. You never call him and get a voicemail, ever. Where you have to leave a message, you know, and you wonder if he got it and he's ever going to call back. Never happens with Christ. He never goes on vacation. He never is away on his seventh anniversary at a conference in another state (laughs) when stuff is going on. I got a text this morning after Sunday school. It's something about something that happened. Something serious happened. A disruption occurred at our services this morning, our first service. And here I am over here eating barbecue. Christ is never away from his people. He never gets to the point where he has too much to bear and feels like he just cannot bear another burden for someone. Can I be honest with you about something about us pastor types? Sometimes we feel that way. I mean, our heart is for the people, but... You can feel sometimes it's overwhelming. I, I don't know if I, can, if I can process another burden, another issue. Christ is not like that. Draw near any time is the intent of the verb there. Psalm 121 says something really unique about Christ. He never sleeps. Never. Never sleeps, never slumbers. And notice that it's not a situation that he just allows or tolerates your, you coming to him. You know, you contact him and, you, and he's nice to you. Sure, we can get together. But thinking privately, there is so much going on right now. Rick's not like that and I'm not like that, but there are those other pastors out there like that. <laughs> other churches. He doesn't just tolerate you. He's beckoning you to come. Asking you to come and doing it with confidence. That word means courage or boldness or confident trust. That indicates that we can approach God even in spite of the most clear and frank recognition of our sins. Sinners are no longer told to keep their distance in fear and trembling from the Holy of Holies like they were in the Old Testament. This is a present tense command. Present tense, that means continually go to him with whatever you have, even if you understand how sinful you are. And you might be sitting there thinking, yes, that's all great, Pastor, but you just don't know the level of my sin. 
I'm struggling with some things that people in this church do not know about. Listen, I said it in the first hour, I say it now, you're far more sinful than you think you are. And he knows that. And yet he says, come here. He beckons you. Present tense. In the Old Testament, the people had to keep offering sacrifices day after day after day. Have you ever thought about how many animals were killed in all those centuries? The amount of blood that was shed just so people's sin could be dealt with at some level? We, we don't offer sacrifices anymore like that. Christ, once for all, atoned for the sins of his people, but instead, we're to go to Christ continually now, confessing and repenting offering a different kind of sacrifice, a broken and contrite heart. He says, come like that. I'm always available. He is. Also this, he's always effective. He's always effective. The help that he gives is exactly what's needed, something no pastor or human counselor can say. Note that verse 16 says that Jesus is available at the throne of grace, verse 16. This is another way of saying the present tense ministry of Jesus at the right hand of majesty on high. Another way to call that is, it's called the throne of grace, where God's free favor is just dispensed. So you find in Jesus true help. He gives you exactly what you need. What do you need? He tells you that. You find mercy, verse 16. Mercy and compassion, which is what you need for failures, past failures, when the sense of your sin and the sense of your, of your guilt and your unworthiness is the most intense. That's when he's saying, come to me, to the throne of grace. What you find from me is mercy. And you find something else, grace, he says. That's what you need now to go forward for the present help that you need and future work that he wants you to do, the strength to conquer temptation, he graciously gives it. He gives you what you need. That's what makes him so effective in his help, and he gives it when we need it. His mercy and grace is right and effective because it's timely. Verse 16 says that he helps us in the time of need. The time of need. In the right moment of our need. And the supply of grace and mercy is totally unrestricted. He holds nothing back. The only condition is your humility and your willingness to go and receive it. He's doing that for us. Moment after moment after moment at the right hand of God on high. What a contrast this freedom of access is to the Old Testament. People were excluded from that holy place, like I said. It stands in contrast to all the false religions of the world. I mean, Christians alone worship a God who speaks in these kind of terms, who loves his children with an everlasting love. We alone know of a, of a God like this personally and intimately, a God who cares for us, a God who beckons us to come to him and fellowship with him. So the point of all this is lay your burden down at the throne of grace where Christ is at the right hand of majesty on high. Lay your burden down. And you may say, Pastor, I I've done that. I did it yesterday. And now I, I think I need to do it again. And so my answer is then do it again. Give it to him again. Yeah, but Pastor, I might be doing this a lot the rest of my life. 
Yes. Continually do it. Never stop going to him for help. But what about this new care package that you're talking about here? I mean, are there limits to the number of visits? I mean, is there a certain number of visits and then there's a charge? Is there a copay? I mean, what's going on here? No. It's not like that kind of package of care at all. Just draw near to him. He waits at the throne of grace, the ascended Lord at the right hand of majesty on high. He waits for you to come to him. He beckons you to come to him. What an incredibly loving and compassionate Savior we have. All this just reminds me of some wrong grammar. Children sometimes use this wrong grammar. Maybe adults do too. We say something is more better than something else. (laughs) I think it's okay to say that here. That's the point of this passage. Christ is more better than everything else. He's the counselor you ultimately need for your life. He's the friend you need if you're lonely. He is the mediator you need because of your sin. It's in Christ that you find strength to bear up under trials as you are a pilgrim in this weary world. He's the strength you need to be a faithful witness for him. He's the strength you need to persevere. It's in him you can have victory over temptation. And it's all because he's the ascended Lord presently at the right hand of God. Cast your burden upon him. Seek to know him. Seek to follow him. You see, that's who we are. We're followers of Christ, this high priest. We're not followers of a human being. We're so grateful for the leaders that God gives us, pastors that he gives us, and people that can speak at a conference or whatever. But ultimately, we don't follow another human being. We're followers of Christ. And we are to persist in this drawing near to him, and that persistence, listen carefully, the persistence in doing this is a sign of true conversion in someone's life. There always lurks this temptation of drawing back. And the hardness of our struggles can possibly do that in some people, but for his true followers, the hardness of the struggles that we face ought to be an inducement to do this, not draw back. It's an inducement to draw near. So again, if you've failed, if you've let him down, if you've sinned, do this. Share your weakness with Christ. Be honest with him. Share it with him in prayer. And something else I can say, prayerlessness, therefore, is sin. It's what they call practical atheism. Prayerlessness. We're saying that we believe in God, but by not praying, we're saying we can live without him. Human arrogance at its worth at its worst. And I know this, because of the sufferings and trials that we experience, there's a little bit of a spill over here. Christ sympathizes with us because of what he experienced. You know what our sufferings and temptations and trials do as well in this body? It makes us sympathetic then toward others who are suffering as well. You can draw near if you know him. But if you're someone who doesn't know Christ, he stands ready 
at the throne of grace to forgive you of your sin. He stands ready for the one who comes in true repentance and true trusting him as the Lord and Savior of their lives. He stands ready to do that. And then you can be a follower of him the rest of your life. And you can continually then draw near to him the rest of your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the present tense ministry of Jesus that it acts like a magnet that draws us up out of this world and reminds us that this world is not our home, that we're pilgrims passing through. We thank you that the present tense ministry of Jesus at the right hand of God gives us that sense of eternal security because we're seated with him there, hidden in the very depths of the Godhead in Christ, eternally secure, and no one can rob us of that. Thank you that because of all that, we can draw near to him, the ruling Lord, who is the Lord who loves us and tells us to come because he sympathizes with us. He understands us better than we understand ourselves, and he gives us grace and mercy to help in time of need. Thank you that the ruling Lord does that for us. Help us to obey this passage and draw near in prayer to Christ continually. And I do pray for the one who doesn't know him, that you would open their hearts to see their need for a Savior and for a Lord, a master in their lives. And may you grace them with that ability to believe, to repent, and to trust in Christ so they can know the joy of the help that he gives. In our Savior's name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.